This is the podcast for the journal Neuropsychopharmacology. I'm Cynthia Graber. The world of medicine has been changing rapidly due to the increasing use of big data, and there's been a major revolution in this approach in neuroscience and psychiatry as well. Computing power, sample sizes, neuroimaging technologies, digital approaches to phenotyping, and computational modeling all are already starting to unleash dramatic new understandings of the brain, as well as new approaches to treatment. And so the journal Neuropsychopharmacology recently published a reviews issue on the topic of big data. Carrie Ressler, chief scientific officer at McLean Hospital and professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, is one of the editors. Dr. Ressler, you've broken the papers in the special issue into thematic groupings. We won't talk about all of them today, but I'd like to highlight a few. First, the use of big data in studying so-called omics, that is genomic research, RNA or transcriptomics, proteins or proteomics. How are these tools being used for greater understanding in psychiatry? Well, Matt State, for example, from um, University of California, San Francisco, is focused on their work on house large-scale genomics of both common disease polymorphisms as well as rare variants and rare syndromes have led to a much better understanding of some of the specific biological pathways underlying some of autism spectrum disorders. And what we've learned is that autism spectrum disorders are not one thing, but it's many different biological pathways, many different ways, if you will, that the brain can be broken or that the neuronal connections can be dysfunctional that can lead to autism-type disorders. And similar kinds of work have have advanced our understanding of schizophrenia as well. Rob McCollum-Smith at the University of Cincinnati, as well as Nick Seyfried at Emory University, talked about work um, across neurodegenerative disorders such as Alzheimer's disease and with proteomics in human brains with Alzheimer's disease, as well as doing some of the translational um, findings and rodent models have suggested, in addition to our understanding of amyloid and tau and other commonly understood disorders in Alzheimer's, the role of potentially inflammation and other components of neurodegeneration that may be critical new targets for treatment. And then McCollum Smith and colleagues talked about um, some of their new approaches to big data and systems pharmacology um, really allows for large-scale screening for potentially drug repurposing and identifying new compounds that may be critical for targeting the new molecular targets that are coming out of these different omic approaches. You mentioned that the omics research is helping understand different biological pathways or roots in autism. And you also write in the introduction to this issue that new data has demonstrated that psychiatric disorders are likely to be more biologically distinct than previously self-reported system clusters, such as for depression or schizophrenia. What tools does big data have to offer to help better define these psychiatric disorders biologically? Yes, and that's really one of the underlying themes of this approach. You know, a metaphor I like to use is that in some ways, diagnosing and treating psychiatric disorders over the last few decades, though I think it's changing rapidly, but certainly in the 90s, was not that much different than going to a doctor for a cough in the 1800s. They could use a stethoscope, you know, the, the best tool of the time, and they could tell you where the cough was located in your chest and, and might define it in several different ways. And at the end of the day, you could have codeine, which would suppress the cough and you were treated. And in many ways, our psychiatric disorders have not historically been that much different in that we can define clusters of disorders based on their behaviors and based on the self-report And our primary treatments really from the 1950s through the early 2000s 
were really based on serendipity and worked, some worked quite well, but they were based on um, the monoaminergic system. So the serotonergic systems, the dopamine systems, the noradrenergic systems, and they essentially suppress the symptoms, but none of them get at the underlying biology. Only now do we have the tools to take depression, for example, and really see depression not as one thing, but as maybe 10 or 20 or 30 different kinds of disorders in which the brain breaks in different ways, all of which lead to this top-level syndrome of low motivation and decreased energy and hopelessness and sadness, et cetera, all of which can be suppressed at some level with serotonergic drugs, but none of which are really getting directly at the underlying biology. And so back to the paper, a number of different groups are using neuroimaging as a first step to break down what we call biotypes of depression. So Connor Liston at Cornell um, shows that functional connectivity of different brain regions leads to several different kinds of appreciation for biological differences in depression that are not at all apparent based on symptoms or based on the patient's story, but tell us that the brain is functioning in different ways in these different subtypes of depression. And that kind of work, we hope, think will take us much further into really understanding the basic biology for new treatments. Another theme in the review is digital phenotyping, that is the ability to collect huge amounts of data via smartphones, whether that's passive collection, like how often someone is moving or communicating, or active, such as regular questionnaires. How can these tools help advance neuropsychopharmacology? It's really everything in psychiatry, but, you know, as some examples, you know, if someone comes in with depression and has sleep problems, well, people have sleep problems in different, different ways. You know, some people have difficulty falling asleep. Some people can't stay asleep. Some people are, are actually staying in bed, but they report not feeling rested. It's very hard from people's self-report to get a really good idea of what's really happening with their sleep. So even most simply, having quantitative metrics of people's real sleep behavior is very important. And that, you know, expands to physical activity and other ways. Similarly, we think that, you know, there are long-standing hypotheses that there are more agitated and anxious depressions versus more withdrawn and melancholic depressions. And those have different kinds of behavioral signatures that can be best measured quantitatively as well. For example, with bipolar disorder, being able to really track when someone is in a manic phase and they're very physically hyperactive and their text-based hyperactivity and how that is different and what are the triggers and time courses versus when they're in a depressed phase and very slow or sleeping all the time all of which is very hard to dissect seeing a patient once every one or two weeks in the office. But if you have real-time data, you can get a much more granular view of their behavior in their life. We've been talking about all the benefits, but are there any particular challenges or limitations to the use of big data in this field? Sure. I mean, I think one of the weaknesses is, as with anything that is new, we don't know what we don't know. <laughs> I think for always in science, there can be an enormous amount of data. But really, you know, we're now at a point where most of the kinds of tools that we're talking about are providing data at a faster and higher throughput level than we really know how to analyze. So I think that's just one general problem for which the field is moving towards improving. I think the other side of this that is you know, a, a, a parallel question with, with how do we use new approaches for data collection and science for bettering of humanity is the ethics questions. There's the issue of, well, do we want our data being observed, you know, sort of the big brother question, the question of how much of our data are already in the world. And the concept of privacy is, is a very different thing now than it used to be. And if my healthcare provider had data that could actually help me or help others be healthy, 
that's at least a more positive use of some of these data than many of the other things used for sales and other components. But I think it's something that we have to constantly be aware of, have to constantly think about how do we do consent? How do we use transparency? How do we protect data, be that genetic data or be that behavioral data so that both we're doing it right and that we have people's trust. After working on this special issue, what's the most exciting to you and your colleagues about the field right now? How can big data make a difference? It feels like while psychiatry has had theoretical breakthroughs over the course of the last centuries, at the end of the day, we were still working with the same organism and observing the same data that we had from what people could tell us. And that while the rest of medicine has exploded over the last 50 years due to our the molecular revolution in terms of our understanding of really quantitative subtyping in cancer, for example, but also microbiology, you know, the fact that with all of the horrible devastation of COVID, the fact that, you know, modern science exists to be able to create a new vaccine from scratch in a matter of months is a pretty remarkable thing. And the great complexity of the brain has kept it behind because the brain to behavior interface is the most complex thing in the universe. But with these kind of approaches, it feels like the field is on the cusp of really having major breakthroughs in understanding behavior in new ways that will be transformative. And that's everything from providing, you know, phone-based apps and coaching and counseling to biofeedback tools to improvements in our targeted treatments, both at a pharmacological level, but also with tools like EEG and neuroimaging and other kinds of ways. So it's really revolutionizing how we as scientists and clinicians interact with the brain and the mind and the person. This is the podcast for the journal Neuropsychopharmacology. To read the articles discussed in the podcast, go to www.nature.com NPP. I'm Cynthia Graber.